0: Hello, everybody. This is a very special episode of Books Closed because, as you can see, I'm not in a tattoo shop, a dirty, regrettable, dark, dingy tattoo shop like I normally am. Today, I'm at the Eustace Estate in Milton, Massachusetts, which I didn't realize was so close to Boston as I was sitting in traffic on the bridge to get here. And uh, the reason that we're here is because there is a very interesting exhibit here. It's called Loud, Naked, and in Three Colors, The History of Tattooing in Boston, and I just got to check it out. It's very exciting. It's very cool. A little blurb from the website here. uh, This exhibit traces the popularization of tattooing in Boston through the stories, flash art, memorabilia, and ephemera of the city's leading tattoo pioneers. And there's no shortage of all of that. What we're gonna do today is have a little talk. We're gonna talk about some history. I've got a couple fantastic guests here um, who know a little bit about New England and Boston and uh, the whole shebang. So I'd like to welcome back to the show Julie Moon for her second appearance, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I was able to talk to Julie a couple years ago at her studio, which is the most whimsical, beautiful, magical place I've ever been that also calls itself a tattoo shop. Thank you. Uh, And also, for the first time, welcoming Eric Lynch of Redemption Tattoo in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Pretty
1: psyched to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being here. Um, This has been in the works for a bit, so it's exciting that the day has finally come. And um, I know that both of you, um, as we were preparing for this today, we, uh, just through conversation, I can tell we have no shortage of stories. You guys both have a lot of insight into tattoo history, whether it's your own or others. Um, So let's get started. Um, I guess let's first talk about uh, this exhibit. We all got a chance to walk around, check things out. What are uh, Julie, what are some of your impressions of what you were able to just see up there?
2: I am amazed. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. I feel that I have learned so much today of the history of tattooing in Boston. I knew of Scully Square. I knew of the, the very sad passing of tattooing and all of the businesses, including the tattoo studios that were in Scully Square, that were eradicated by government center Coming along, as well as the the now forbidden, at the time, um, art of tattooing. And I learned so much. There is so much beautiful flash, machines, photographs. It is truly an amazing exhibit.
0: It is, and we were talking about how funny it is to see this stuff in a museum setting. as it, some of it were pieces that were thumbtacked to the wall that were pulled down, and now they're displayed in this beautiful setting. And it's it's a funny thing to see tattooing featured this way sometimes.
2: <laughs> this uh, Eustace estate is gorgeous. It is. It is mind-bogglingly a gorgeous, beautiful setting for this exhibit.
0: Yeah. Well, it's nice that they let some riffraff like us through the back door to do this real <laughs> quick before the boss comes in later, so...
1: Yeah, it's crazy pulling up here. I, I was saying that its it felt like you're going into one of those, like, movies where you're going to stay overnight in some spooky mansion or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's amazing. Um, just to see all the stuff hanging and to make it look like a fine art show. I know it's considered fine art still as well. But um, it's great. I think it's awesome. I wish that more museums and I hope more museums pick up on this stuff, especially American stuff. I know MFA does... Uh, the Japanese stuff because of the prints and all the, the the woodblock prints that they have, a huge collection. But uh, I really wish they would maybe focus a little bit more on the American stuff.
0: Yeah. It seems to be a growing trend around Absolutely. the States a little yep. bit. We see these big shows happening every couple of years or so. But I I think as more people are willing to share their collections, um, I think we'll see a lot more of this stuff. We've certainly seen a lot of books. Uh, I know you put together a book recently in the last couple of years we with did. with a yep. bit of your collection, <laughs> which we can talk about in a little bit. But sure. um it's, um, I feel like a lot of tattooers are maybe a little closed off to sharing what they have sometimes.
1: I, I did for years. I was afraid to show stuff. I still sort of am. I, um, it's really being a collector, especially nowadays, there's so many collectors that aren't tattooers, which is totally cool, mm-hmm. but, uh, it makes it a lot harder to buy stuff and I'm, I'm cheap. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> pay millions of dollars for stuff and, uh, stuff, the prices of, for stuff is, is it's crazy what people pay now.
0: So you it's feel great. like you collecting has slowed down a bit in the last years?
1: Uh, it's just harder to find stuff. you got to get yeah. real sneaky and know where you're looking and uh, use different ways of finding stuff. Um, I'm sure antique dealers do the same. You know, They put their, their name out everywhere, hand their cards out, blah, 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 blah looking for everything. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's gotten far more difficult. I remember when I started collecting in the late 90s, um, it didn't feel like it's not that no one cared. It's just no one outside of the small little group Of people that felt like they cared about collecting this stuff from the past um, were collecting. Um, I used to trade stuff with Eric Maskey back then, and uh, I remember trading, um, man, we trade sheet for sheet, or uh, I remember trading him a Rogers machine, and he traded me two Owen Jensen's and a bunch of Flash just for one machine, you know, and nowadays that collection of stuff that I might have traded could be like 10 grand. So prices have gone through the roof, it's crazy.
0: And at that time, you probably weren't thinking about the value of it.
1: No, I never have.
0: It wasn't a never money had. investment. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something Still that you were... Still don't think of it that
1: way. No, right. that's why I'm cheap. Yeah. <laughs> that's why uh, I've never spent over $1,000 on anything. Well, actually, there's one sketchbook that I bought for a couple grand, but uh, I'm I'm cheap. I don't really spend a lot on this stuff.
0: <laughs> well, I feel like collecting, you kind of have to make parameters for yourself, and that's what can keep it interesting.
1: Absolutely. And, and I'm collecting for myself. I'm not... I didn't, it wasn't to... Kind of show it or show it off or go look what I got or something. It's just I just love the stuff. So
0: yeah, for me. Yeah. I and mean, I know people that have stuff that will never share it with anybody. They barely want to show close friends, and I feel like that's almost a shame to have this stuff locked up I until th- inevitably. I think a lot of tattooing has
1: always been that way. That people are afraid to share stuff. I mean, when I started, I remember people not sharing what color they would use, or they you know they they'll tell you like, oh yeah, I did something funky to this ink to make it better or something, you know? So, um, I could see that, you know, not everybody wants to share everything. Nowadays we, we share as much as we can, but yeah, it's nice to kind of hold something close and maybe not share it with somebody.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, well, let's talk about that. Let's, um, within tattooing the acquisition of knowledge and information, because I think that's something that's really changed I'm sure over both of your careers, uh, the attitudes that you see, and maybe your own attitude as far as sharing and, and um, acquiring knowledge. So, Julie, what year did you start tattooing? I started tattooing in 1978. So at that time, um, what like what did things look like as far as you getting your foot in the door? Like how did you get your your opportunity to begin?
2: It took me five years to find an apprenticeship, and. It was fortuitous that I was able to uh, take my art portfolio. I was an art student, um, part-time and working for the Navy full-time. And I took my portfolio down to Richmond, Virginia, to Danny Fowler's studio. I had seen some of his work, and he was using <gasps> a pastel blue. Oh. And did moons and stars and things like that that were so not traditional tattooing. And it's like, I want to meet that guy. And he looked at my portfolio, was interested in opening a studio right outside of Washington, D.C. and he agreed to take me on right away. What is it that he you think
0: that he saw in you? Was it just purely your your art acumen or was there more to it?
2: I think it was where I lived and that I was interested that I seemed sincere and like I would be dedicated, and also that I lived in the area where he was thinking of opening a studio.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right place at the right time. Exactly. So he was probably pretty open with sharing things with you then, if he took you on as an apprentice.
2: Yes. Well, also, I had my Huck Spaulding catalog with me, and I showed that to him, and he was surprised that I had the Huxbalding catalog <laughs> right in my hot little hand. And he said, okay, well, this is what you need to do. And he went through the catalog and said, buy this, 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 and this. Don't worry about that. Don't get that. Get this instead. And it was um, that was my shopping list mm-hmm. for my first round of tattoo equipment. Yeah. And that's nice to
0: have that guide from the start, too. We were, we were talking earlier about um, how every generation of tattooers seems to pick up things so much faster. And um, in that case, that's clear that he helped you skip probably all of his mistakes and ordering all the wrong things first. And you just started with whatever was the best of the best, in his opinion, at that time, which is huge.
2: That was huge and is, still is in my mind.
0: Yeah. So, Eric, what, when did you start tattooing?
1: god (laughs) i feel like there should be like a parental advisory before i uh,
0: let's get into it
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's like i'm johnny knoxville welcome to (laughs) underage tattooing um i tattooed myself at 13 it's a little little hand poke it's funny i I called my mom last night because i thought about this stuff and i and it's been so long asking about dates and when my mom first noticed a tattoo on me and all these things Uh, so I moved from Pennsylvania when I was 13. I got up here and I was a little metalhead, so I was into all the little spooky little skulls and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I actually I hand poked a little skull on me, hand poked a little cross, and then a friend saw it, I hand poked a little thing on them, and it just kind of progressed. So that was 86, and then I got equipment by 88. My girlfriend wanted a tattoo, so I went. We went in the back of like outlaw biker or something like that. And I remember it was Phoenix Tattoo Supply. It was 99 bucks, and you got a like a little battery-operated rotary DC machine um, that was attached to like this plastic – I don't even know what it was. It, it was like a plastic tube with the end of it that had uh, – looked like one of those little gel squeeze things where the needle would go through. And I kid you not, the instructions were you got coffee straws, and they gave you a little pack of needles, and you taped the needle onto the straw – and then poked the straw through the needle that was on the rotary. And that's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. Yeah. <laughs> so Good I, I, I did, I did quite oh a few with gosh. that. Um, I have some on my ankle that I did. Um, eventually I had it in a friend's car and the box got stepped on and took a year off. And then, uh, I got into a car accident. Uh, I got a little bit of a settlement. I bought some Spalding stuff. Um, went through the thing and, you know, you filled out, I wrote all my little stuff down and, uh, um, this is when about my mom said she started noticing me because I was getting, you know, as a, as a kid, you hang, like my, my brother had like Megadeth and we, we were like metalheads, So we had like all the posters on our walls. Well, I had like one wall that was all the metal stuff. And the other thing was all the tattoos I was ripping out of magazines and putting them all up on my wall. And I was 15 or 16. Um, so that's when I ordered my stuff. 16 had that for quite a while. Um, Am I going too far. <laughs> uh, did that for a while. Um, I, I didn't get back I didn't actually get into a shop till about 92 93. and in 93, actually I briefly met you at gyms. in winter of 9'3, there was like a it was like a meeting for uh, regulations for New Hampshire at gyms. I remember meeting you, Sean Anderson? Like a bunch of other people at that shop, um, I spent maybe a year in that shop that 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 I worked at. It it just didn't work out. His uh, the guy and his wife just I, maybe I was too young. I didn't. I never really took it seriously back then. It was just something that you know I was a metalhead kid, stoner dude that just was thought tattoos were cool. It wasn't like I was like
0: you weren't looking at it as a career yet. I
1: never did. Yeah, I never did up until like. I actually got into a shop and um, eventually I got into another shop. I met a woman, uh, Tracy Daniels, at uh, um, Mad Hatter's and that was 94-ish. I was getting tattooed by Rob Koss and I wanted really wanted to get tattooed by Guy, but Guy was busy, didn't didn't have time. Rob was there, I got tattooed by him. Um, She was like, oh, I heard you were working in the shop helping Jack and... I was like, yeah, it didn't work out. She's like, you should come work the, the desk for me. And I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, I got nothing to do. Um, worked with her. And Tracy was great. She taught me how to make needles. And that worked out great. She wasn't the greatest at helping me tattoo. And I don't know if it's because I didn't ask. Or she was busy. or She was basically one day, she's like, you want a tattoo, right? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, yeah, okay, well, they do it. So started tattooing. It worked out okay. Um... She eventually closed her shop, moved on, and one of the summers I met a guy that worked for her for a little while, Chris, Chris Vinceski. Mm-hmm. Chris was massive help. He when I met him, he was so into tattooing at the time. And for for that time of his life, like that from the late seventies up until I met him, um, obsessed. Taught me about Hardy and what I should look at and history of stuff, and that's how I started getting obsessed. He he was Massive, massive help. Um, worked with him for a summer, which was awesome, in Salem. That was what I wanted, you know, that street shop, kind of gritty, put your name on the board, you know, if it wasn't on the wall, you didn't need it, kid, you know, that kind of shop. Um, did that for a while and then moved to New Hampshire, worked in New Hampshire for um, eight years after that, not six years, something like that, and then mass finally legalized and met Mike Shea and we opened up Redemption 2002 in 20 years. It's crazy. That is crazy. Time flies, huh? Yeah.
0: So that, yeah, that's interesting to hear about, um, these really important experiences I think a lot of us have, whether it's meeting the right person or going to the right place or just whatever it is where it flips the switch, like where you started looking at tattooing differently and you saw the certain artists that just really, it turned from like, a cool metalhead thing in your bedroom to a real career and a real pursuit and something that you can pour
1: magazines, man. I I saw that first 1990 guy, just an article. And I was just like, wait, what this is, it's not like dudes on Harley's and little Eagles. And I was like, which I loved, but then I saw guy doing like Chrome and like all these other things. I was like, wait, what? So that totally even pushed me even more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Seeing those tattoos where it makes you, think like how are they doing these with the same tools that I do to do the little piddly tattoos that I'm doing up until this point it's like it just it makes your mind completely explode and just like rip wide open uh, Julie do you have any experiences that you can remember that were just like extremely
2: eye-opening to you at any point oh quite a few I feel extraordinarily blessed that I went to what was maybe the second or third tattoo convention ever, and that was in Houston in January of 1979. What an eye-opener. It was very small by today's conventions, but I got to meet Ed Hardy. I got to meet a lot of tattooers, and this is a point at which there is no internet. There, There's not a lot of Mm, even advertising or tattoo magazines are not a thing yet, but just to see someone like Ed Hardy doing doing the amazing work that he was doing. And when you're coming from a place of looking at the traditional work and thinking, well, that's how it's supposed to be, and then trying to wrap my head around, how do you make it look like that or like that, how do you, and somehow there was a disconnect in things that I could paint and what I was supposed to tattoo, because it's like in tattooing, it's like all the shading had to be black, always, and it wasn't for a long time until I realized that, you know, I have this whole palette that I can work with, it's just like the acrylics (laughs) and oils, you know, I can use that same parameter to do something different with my art. But it took a few years for that to evolve. Yeah. Well, after
0: like basically being programmed to think that there is no other option, then I can see that you like the, the deprogramming of your brain would probably, even though you can do it with the paints and it makes perfect sense and you've got this ability and this sensibility with your art, that, then translating that to the um, translating that to tattooing, it, it just seems like you can't do it and you're limited and you're stuck. And in a lot of ways, we are limited, but like working within those limitations, I think, is what um, a lot of progression. Will be born through.
2: I mean, you consider everything had to have a black outline. Yeah. Everything. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So at that point at
0: that convention, was Ed Hardy like Ed Hardy already?
2: He was rapidly becoming Ed Hardy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because he, um, I don't think he, no, he hadn't published the first Tattoo Time magazine, but it was... The very next year, I believe, that he published that, New Tribalism, which addressed New Tribalism as well as traditional Americana tattooing, Um, and it was eye-opening. He addressed um, all of the the black and gray work that was coming out of East L.A., you know, with Freddie Negretti, Jack Rudy. That was a whole new ball of wax in tattooing and immediately everybody started working with single needle stuff and we mostly did it badly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and it takes a couple of years to realize how badly you did it sometimes.
2: I'm glad the stuff was light enough that it could be easily covered. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that always the case?
0: <laughs> um, so, Eric, let's talk about around the time that tattooing was legalized in Massachusetts. Because I think some younger tattooers that may be listening to this don't realize that in our lifetime, or yours, tattooing was illegal in the U.S. in multiple states. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to think about it now, Mm -hmm. as we sit in a beautiful, the Eustace estate, and being encouraged to have this conversation about tattooing amongst an exhibit of cool old tattoo stuff, that there was a time where in this state, you weren't legally allowed to tattoo unless it was for medical reasons.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I I honestly think it was because no one really put their hand up and actually fought it. I I really think, and that doesn't diminish the fact that uh, I believe his name is Steve, Stefan, Stefan, I don't know his name. I don't want to get his name wrong. Uh, but anyway, I, I, they, the man that fought it and the, the tattooer that fought it um I think it was because of him stepping up and saying, hey, let's hire a lawyer, let's fight this, let's see what we can do about this. And I believe it took like two years to get through the state to do it. Um, There was so much tattooing going on in Massachusetts. No one cared. I tattooed police officers, firemen, like no, no one cared. It was basically you just couldn't have a storefront. Like no one was gonna do anything. Um, Yeah, the
2: law never stopped the great underground economy. Right, because they're all getting tattooed as well.
1: There was still amazing stuff going on. Um, I believe it it legalized, what, in 2001, and then we opened in 2002. There were shops that were just sitting there ready. I know Rahm's shop, um, Pumpkin Tattoo, and a couple other shops. They were piercing shops. So they were just sitting there waiting for this to happen. And I think even uh, that first tattoo, the Earth Tour, um i believe the first one they tried to do uh they were just they just legalized tattooing and they were going to try to do tattooing there and they didn't have it and they had to wait till the following year um to get to get tattooing in 2001 the fall of 2001 what was that tour uh tattoo the earth so it was like uh the i can't remember what it was called i I believe you were there the the that was the one
2: in worcester that was Paul booth's show
1: yeah, exactly. It was wow. like tattoo the earth. Mm-hmm. They did that show, and then they did a show in Chicago. I did that one, and then they went on to L.A. and But there were bands. There was like you know Slayer was attached to it, and all these other bands. Um, the Massachusetts one, I can't remember there being bands t- attached to it. But uh, I did that one. I shared a booth with Ami uh, because there was a couple that were trying to open a shop in downtown Boston. And AMI was going to be a part of it and a couple other guys and uh, they fought it and fought it and fought it but uh Boston wouldn't move on the um zoning laws they just wouldn't let anybody into downtown Boston and I don't think they still do I, I I believe they don't want tattooing in you know city center Boston um I could be wrong about that too so I I don't know
2: well the Commonwealth of Massachusetts didn't mandate any specific rules and regulations. They set up guidelines, but they allowed for each and every city mm. and township to create their own guidelines. Yep. So you could go more stringent and more extreme than what um, the state allows, but you cannot do less. Right. So around that time,
0: was that when you were at gyms, Julie, when Massachusetts was legalized?
2: I started out at gyms and then um, established my own, my own studio. And um, I started looking in Massachusetts because most of my clientele came from the North Shore and it seemed kind of silly to stay in New Hampshire when I could move closer to, to the bulk of my clientele. And um, I checked in, in Somerville, in Medford, in Malden, and at the time, there was a certain paranoia associated with having this new tattooing being allowed. Omg, um, Somerville, I went to the um, to a meeting of like the Davis Square committee, and uh, and I had my my little silk business suit. I had handouts. I was I gave a little talk. And their attitude was, well, we're sure you are really nice and it would be lovely. But if we let you in, we're going to have to let in all the riffraff. So <laughs> you can be you can be in the industrial part of town, which is basically underneath of 93. Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's what Boston did as well. They pushed it out to the industrial zones. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How long was it until you you, you would say that maybe people's attitudes change? or is there still some lingering attitudes?
1: Mm. Our, our last place that we rented, um, we had to actually hire a lawyer. We hired a lawyer to represent us because when the first redemption, we were there for four years, we lost the spot because uh, it was this company, Modern Continental that was tied in with the big dig and uh, they were getting sued by the city or something like that because they had, I don't know, manipulated a bunch of money or something like that and they had to liquidate everything. Um, so when we started looking, no one would talk to us every, as soon as they heard tattooing and I'm like, no, uh-uh. so we hired a lawyer, we put a little package together, almost like a, you know, representing us articles, all the, all these things. Um, even th- got a letter from the health department from Cambridge, everything to approach, um, uh, leasees, like the landlords. Did you uh, wear a
0: silk business suit?
1: I did not. Well, no, I didn't even <laughs> get to Drive talk one. to these people. No, I didn't even get to talk to them. So luckily for us the people that we rented from there were two brothers one brother was like no way the other brother was like ah come on so that brother talked the other guy into it and it's been great we've been with those guys for 16 years now so they've been awesome so we got lucky we got lucky
0: yeah yeah which is funny to think that you still have to get lucky in a situation like that because i think a lot of landlords will find that tattooers are great tenants
1: Absolutely. And that's, and it's funny because that's Dave even said that they're like, we've gotten, uh, Frank who was great. He, uh, he's even said to us, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys always looking for the building, looking out for stuff. And if anything ever happens, giving me a call or anything like that. So yeah, of course.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was looking up some stats about legalization of tattooing in the U S cause I wasn't sure. I was trying to figure out what was the last state to legalize it. Do you guys know a little trivia?
2: Mm, South Carolina. Uh I thought it was in,
1: like, Midwest. Was it, like, Idaho? or
0: Oklahoma. Oklahoma, Oklahoma. yeah. 2006. Yep,
1: that's right.
0: Which seems like a long time to hang on when everyone else was pretty much um, jumping on board. Because I feel like I hear, I mean, you hear all the stories of, like, New York City underground tattooing and how that's romanticized, and there's, I'm sure, a lot of that in Massachusetts around Boston and stuff, too. Um, But New York City was legalized in 97, so almost another 10 years Oklahoma there were, was still I hanging on. Got,
1: there were shops on the street there, I my mean, Jonathan shop had a open door walk up in to the the place, so I meant that yeah, I don't think anybody ever bothered them, so right better things to worry about right <laughs>
0: right, <laughs> right, so uh once you guys opened uh two thousand two, what was that like for you to just be out in the open full store front just letting it rip what did it feel different because i mean you had come from being around new hampshire and stuff so you you weren't always like underground but was it a different feeling to just have like a legit legit shop and there probably weren't a ton of shops quite yet at that point not
1: really i meant being thrown into being the owner which which i've never liked i don't like being a boss i don't want to have someone have to come to me and ask me to govern them i don't want to do that
2: I can um, barely stand to be the boss of oh, me. I don't like exactly <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so I, it, that was the only thing that kind of freaked me out a little bit. There was three of us that owned the place.
0: How old were you then? In 2002? Uh, oh
1: geez, math. Um, twenty nine. I was twenty nine. Yeah, when yeah. we opened. Um, so there was three of us that owned the place that we all had to make decisions and get along, and then we had another guy, Grez, who works at Kings Ab now. Um, shop was great. I loved that first redemption shop. it was we wanted to have that street shop slash even though none of us did anything off the wall unfortunately because nobody wanted that um but I love that street shop big open front you know everybody can come in you know it just has that energy to it um yeah I, I don't I don't think I focused on more than anything but open but owning a shop that was that was hard for me it's still hard for me 20 years and i I, I still have a hard time I didn't get into tattooing to do taxes and look at my quickbooks and like it's just nah, nah, right yeah so right. that was that was tough
0: yeah um do you guys still feel kind of tethered to your shops like is oh, it hard God, to I shake guess. that feeling as, as owners i know i do
2: how, how can you not yeah <laughs> yeah i mean if you own a shop you've got a shop it's more work than a puppy
1: <laughs> and you get, you want to be there for everybody else and make sure everybody else is comfortable and gets along and you know yeah you that's need. true yeah
0: yeah. Do you think that's the hardest part? Just managing people.
1: Depends on the people, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean you've got you've got some people who are much easier than others.
1: I mean, we're tattooers, man. We're spoiled. Yeah. yeah. are spoiled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I declared my studio to be a drama free zone. Did it work? Uh mostly.
1: Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Not a hundred
2: not a hundred percent, but mostly. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty mellow.
0: Yeah. Well that's good. I mean I I guess over time it's only gonna get easier, but there's always that uh Those variables that you can't really control. Uh, I'm just trying to soak up some wisdom for my own personal journey here (laughs) that I'm at the beginning of. So lately I've been, um, since we've all been sitting on the internet a little more through the pandemic at times, um, and just taking in some maybe current tattoo trends, things that are popular, things that you see pop up, and now things that clients will ask, oh, have you seen this or seen that? And there's all these like minimal, maybe crudely done tattoos for the sake of being crude stuff that I've always kind of turned my nose up to because it just looks like bad tattoos to me. Um, but the more that it exists and the more that we see it, um, it feels kind of like cool and punk rock. And it makes me think back to the times, like when the new tribalism, um, the tattoo times came out um, and like tribal tattoos were this cool, different thing. And it was a response to everything else that was happening. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Julie, if you thought like when you really started exploring uh, and pushing boundaries with your work and not outlining everything in black and not just black shading everything, um, did you feel like you were doing something that was very different? And did you, were, was there pushback to that? Were people critical? Like, what was that like to be doing something that wasn't the thing that everyone did?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I got too much pushback. Um, I've been doing custom tattooing for so long, and I always believe that tattooing is a collaboration between the artist and the client. And if someone wanted a a heavier black outline around their work, then that's what I would do. I don't do so much of that now. I, I tend to like that very intense color contrast and creating strong edges and then going into soft edges. So it's different. And I think when you're working to please another person, you're a commercial artist, you've got to please your client, and they come to you because you're doing things a certain way. Right. So in that regard, from my clients, I'm not going to get pushback. Maybe from other people who would like for me to tattoo something different, and I will say go see that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I believe in matching the artist and the project.
1: Absolutely.
0: And with you, Eric, how has it been like curating a clientele? Do you feel that at this point, after so many years, you pretty much have a a strong crop of clients that are interested in what you do?
1: Yes, I've been I've been extremely lucky. Um, I hate telling people no. I feel I feel very obligated to do stuff, and I finally told myself I've had this talk with my wife fifty million times because I'll go home and be like rant to, to myself, and she'll listen and give me her good points of view. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I meant like I, I've there's so many times that I've taken things on just because I felt the obligation to do it, and not that I wouldn't do. Good job with doing that specific thing because if something comes to me and they want a portrait or they want, I just can't do it. So why do you want to come to me? I'm not going to do that. But if they come to me and there's something that I can do, but I don't have my heart into it, I feel kind of guilty taking it on. I don't feel that I should. So um, I definitely have gotten better at that, telling people no and 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 not no, just like hey, you guys, please email this guy, or please email that guy. Let me introduce you to you know, Mike or Jeb or Joe or, and they do the same thing. If they feel all the guys at the shop kind of do that. I feel, I feel like we all do that now, you know, like there's so many people that are put in their own little category, whether they want to be there or not, with the style that they do. And I think they fit it best for the client and it's, it's for the client in the long run, right? Because they're the ones that matter. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be doing anything. We definitely wouldn't be tattooing. So it's all about them.
0: Right. And if there's just too many good tattooers to do stuff that you don't want to do and to do stuff that you don't think that you're the best match for, which is a relief in a lot of ways. But I think it takes some maturity to admit that to yourself and to realize when no is the right answer. Sure. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Absolutely.
0: Have either of you ever felt limited by your clientele in the sense that they detect that they look at your work, they decide what they think you do and maybe there's periods where people are asking you for the same thing over and over and over again. Have you ever experienced that?
2: I do a lot of koi Mm. fish. (laughs) I just started one over the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the outlines were all black, too. (laughs) It's very Japanese style. Um, Oh, wow. No, I'm getting... I'm getting much better at referring projects that aren't in my wheelhouse, or they're not. Or it's like Eric said, um, my heart's not in it. It's like, oh, this is this is too much right now. The timing's not right. Mm-hmm. So um, I am getting much better at saying no.
1: It won't, it- definitely makes it fair to the client
2: absolutely absolutely because um i want to uplift my client and also be uplifted by the project and if i don't perceive that that's going to happen then no i don't want to do it Mm. yeah
1: absolutely i've even had emails from clients that i've I've referred to somebody else and they would be like dude thank you so much i worked with blah 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 and it's worked out great thanks for just letting me know that and Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, that always feels good that it works out. But it's always a risk, too, because sometimes you get the emails that are like, oh, I tried to to go to that person you recommended, and it did not work out. And then you feel a little bad, but (laughs) what are you going to (laughs) do? We can only try our best.
2: Sorry it didn't work out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. See you never. So, Eric, let's talk about the book you put together, because you are a collector of things. I like stuff. Yes, and we were all talking about this before we got started, um, and I know that you both have cool stuff because mm-hmm. Julie told me about cool stuff that she has, and I know there's probably uh, sheds worth uh, more stuff that we you haven't mentioned yet. So um, let's start. Let's talk about your book. What was sure. that project? What was your motivation for putting that together? Finally,
1: uh, well, the motivation was we got shut down, right? So um, it was more or less something I wanted to do like later on in life. Um, I told myself I wasn't going to do it for a long time, only because. I felt like I just didn't have enough stuff. There, there's so many tattoo books out there, and I don't want to diss anybody's books, but there's a lot of books that they'll base a massive book around a tiny collection, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted a book that, to make that I would want to buy, and I felt like, wow, there's so much stuff in here. So I. So kinda, it was a
0: good excuse to buy more shit your whole life.
1: Yeah, it's always been an excuse. I sell <laughs> stuff to buy stuff. I got stuff on eBay right now. <laughs> um yeah so it was I got shut we got shut down and you know I spent a couple weeks with my kids it was awesome I've never taken more than two weeks off since like the early like mid 90s something like that I oh I broke my wrist I took they told me I was gonna have eight weeks off and I was like no I'm not I took three weeks off um so after the two or three weeks I was like should I paint I don't want to paint I I that's that's tough for me I I love art but tattooing is kind of my art um so, yeah, I went through my collection. I started looking at stuff, tried to narrow it down to what I felt like uh, would make something interesting. So I based it off uh, traveling. So what that, what that means is, you know, anybody with would travel, they would carry around those little sketchbooks or um, travel stuff where they can put up really quickly. Um, anything like that. So uh, kind of poked through my stuff, did a little bit of writing because I was a little nervous about doing that. Um, I never really sat down and wrote anything for, for a very long time. So did a basic writing. I I wanted it more like a, I love Ed Hardy's flash from the past, that little book. It's, you know, the nine by 11 or six by nine or whatever it is. And it was just so informative with name, date, who did it, amazing sheet, move on to the next page. You know, that, that's what I wanted. So, uh, sort of based it around that, that same size, the same aspect, and uh, I put a lot of stuff in it. So uh, I was really happy the way it came out. It was a lot of work. I did it really fast. I did it in like three weeks just to get it out there because, you know, I got children. I got to feed those guys. Mm -hmm. So uh, it worked out great. I love it. And I I did a really small run. I only did 500. Um, I'm going to, I just said that I was going to do another run. I'm only going to do a hundred. I don't want to, I've had approaches to do it wholesale and stuff like that. And I like hard to find things. I want to make it a hard to find thing. If it's interesting and yours from now, and that'd be great. But eh, I don't need to do a lot of them, you know.
0: Do you have specific stuff uh, that you try to collect? Specific artists or?
1: No. Uh, well, I I like stuff. I like the Carney stuff. Any traveling stuff. Stuff fourteen like nineteen forties and under. Um, I had a bunch of stuff like you know Jensen Rogers. All this stuff that that I loved, but I felt like it just didn't fit me. So I sold a bunch of that stuff and I've just really been looking for the really early stuff. I love that stuff. So, yeah.
0: Do you think a lot of the bigger name tattooers um, that everybody knows about, do you think everything from their life has been uncovered yet?
1: No. Oh, do you mean like are things still sitting in somebody's garage or act? Like, are there, there
0: unseen uh, Burt Grimm sheets? Are there unseen Sailor Jerry sheets?
1: Mm. Ooh. So, Maybe about 10 or 12 years ago, I came across a collection on eBay. Um, I got it. It was, it's probably about 50 to 60 photographs. It was black and white photographs, 11 by 14. And they were what, maybe about 75% of them are what were in all those Jerry books that Hardy put out. A lot of them weren't. And I still have a lot of them that that uh, I've never seen. And I approached Ed in New York when he was at King's Ave. I said, Hey, can you take a look at these? Um, And he looked at them. He's like, Oh, these were all in the book. I was like, No, 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 these, these, these. And he saw them. He's like, Hmm. He's like, Well, he's like, The only thing I can think of is this possibly happened when I guess Malone was a photographer and he possibly photographed them all to either for himself or to give to somebody else. And maybe they're long lost sheets i don't know i haven't really shown them to anybody well that's not true i sold i sold a bunch and then i've kept a bunch that that have not been seen so yeah so I, yeah there probably is some stuff out there that nobody's seen you know guys like me don't like showing everything
0: well, come on, come on! I'll share. I'll share. There.
1: Share. Just, just put it on the internet for free. Eh, internet. Eh. Think about how many likes you'll get. Eh, I don't worry about likes. At least four hundred. I'll do the likes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you like them enough. You just scroll by. <laughs> as long as you see it, it's cool. You don't have to like it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Julie, you were telling me about how you've acquired some interesting things, and a lot of it more so straight from the source, not just from not eBay finds, which are cool too. <laughs> But, you know, different times. Of course.
2: Well, I do have my Paul Rogers machines that I got very early on. And I was down there in Jacksonville and helped Paul spray paint some of them. Because he decided he wanted to do them in different colors. And he wanted them to be fancy. So maybe half of them were red and the upper half was gold but he um, i made a sign for him that said iron factory That's what i was going to ask i was mm-hmm.
1: going to ask that i thought i heard that you had done that sign i
2: did i did the sign but paul did not want to draw attention to his little shed and therefore he did not he did not put it over the door like i had envisioned he says oh, i don't want to get in trouble with anybody the shed was just at his house yep yeah. the shed yeah.
1: exists did you hear did you know that there's some right. uh, does Eric Tom Beasley it on have it? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I maybe they got it from from Beasley. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, and I'm sorry that I can't. Be, but he's is it Friedman? Is he a machine builder? Uh, anyway, Feldman. there's there's a machine builder that that has it, and I I just saw it recently, and he has it in his machine shop, and they they, I guess they kind of reconstructed the the where Paul had stuff and Mm -hmm. kind of rebuilt it and fixed the roof and all that stuff. Oh wow. And it's in a shop. Yeah. Oh, that's too cool. Yeah. Does it have the sign on it still? Mm -hmm. Well, he
2: never, he never did put the sign up. Okay.
1: That would
0: have been cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, back at that time when you were hanging with Paul Rogers, no big deal.
2: It was amazing. And, and Paul had been, um, traveling with carnivals. We, we saw photographs of, of himself, um, and and his wife and she was in please forgive me for telling this <laughs> he was very embarrassed about about this because she's in a very cute pearl like bikini top and a skirt you know a really nice costume but i guess that was just too scandalous for the time because this was back in the 20s and um and he was he was tattooing then as well. And he could he could still, in nineteen seventy-eight, um, hold on to a vertical bar and lift his whole body out, out to one side and hold that for a moment. Wow. So he was in very good shape.
1: Yeah, did did he do a balancing act or something like that?
2: I think
0: so. Yeah, I yeah. seen photos of him doing handstands and yeah, stuff right? like, yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah, he seemed like he was always in pretty good shape for an older guy.
2: We also talked to um Paul's son. Leonard, who was telling us about um, Pop retiring from his shop, which I'm trying to remember if it was in Richmond or where, where it was in Virginia, or maybe it was in Jacksonville. Now, I don't remember. That was in the far distant past for me. But that um, they had been, they, meaning the powers that be in the city, had wanted him to close down and had been making suggestions that he might want to close the studio. And he said that he thought they sent somebody in to beat him up, which they did, and put him in the hospital. And he was, I guess, so badly beaten at that time that his sons came in and and closed down the studio and gathered up everything and stored it. And that's when he actually actively retired from um, commercial tattooing. So that was, that's kind of a tragic tale, but he did keep on tattooing and I got a tattoo from him on the 50th anniversary of the first day he tattooed.
1: Oh wow. Amazing. Did you see that thing, Eric? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's so cool on her ankle.
2: And that's part of my collection. It's still there. I love seeing those <laughs> tattoos.
0: Yeah.
1: We awesome. were out at, uh, visiting Bruno. We made, uh, Ed Hardy show his, uh, his tattoo by, um, oh God names. Stoney Sinclair. Stoney Sinclair. Yes. Oh wow. So we got to see that. That was awesome.
2: Which is
0: especially cool because of that video documenting the whole thing that we've exactly. all seen. Exactly.
2: Yep. Yep. Oh my yep. gosh. I had um, approached Marty Holcomb. I had seen Marty Holcomb down at uh, Mardi Gras one year. And I think I think it was in 76. And I was interested in tattooing. And Marty Holcomb was standing there in the street corner with... Um, this fellow who had his entire back and chest tattooed and beautiful blues and gorgeous colors. It was amazing. And it was like an eye magnet. You know it's like, Oh, I have to talk to these people. <laughs> and he gave me his address in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, a friend and I drove out there to be tattooed by stone, not by Stoney, but by Marty Holcomb. And I saw the Stony St. Clair signs. Um, you know, tattooing and not knowing who he was. And I asked Marty Holcomb about it. He sees tattooing me. He says, oh, he's, he's a terrible person. He's this awful <laughs> charlatan. You don't want to go there. Amazing. So yeah. that's part of my collection of stories. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm always interested in like the interpersonal uh, opinions of each other, of people, because I think when we look back, um, especially – like being my age those are all like mythical creatures almost these are people that like haven't existed in my world of tattooing in a real way other than seeing them in books and like sometimes the video clips that you can still find and stuff um but it's interesting to think what did those guys think about each other how were they actually to their customers all these things that like you know stories like that are my only insight that i ever get into that and that's it's always funny to hear uh, anecdotes like that about people
2: i ask um smoky nightingale when i got my first tattoo um i i just the minute that machine got into my skin and i got that that first tattoo it's like wow this is what i want to do it was like a religious calling or something and um and i said do you ever teach and of course not knowing that tattoo artists get that ask of them at least once a day yeah and he's like i'm only going to teach my kids <laughs> <laughs>
0: He wasn't interested in adopting you, so yeah, it's probably for the best.
2: Probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like things still worked out, so I think we can look back and laugh at that. <laughs> so as far as um, maintaining a career goes, um, I think any artistic endeavor or anything that, that's like a lifetime pursuit, it's interesting to consider the things that maybe you guys have done and continue to do to do this long term because tattooing is difficult. It's demanding. um, It's hard on our bodies. And it also is hard on our brains. And I feel like mentally fatigued after just a normal day of tattooing still, even if it's like a pretty easy day with good clients and stuff, but it just, it takes a lot out of you.
2: Oh, good. You feel that too? I do. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) I do. Yeah. I'm a stress case most of the time, even still like things feel easier, but it's still not easy. Um, so Eric, what do you think? Um, what do you think about tattooing long-term have things felt easier for you do how do you <sighs> stay excited like all these things
1: i love what i do I, I don't ever until somebody at the shop tells me to go home i don't think i'm gonna i think i'll be there as long i luckily fingers crossed knock on wood all that good stuff i don't have any problems i don't have wrist problems i don't have back problems I my neck bugs me a little bit <sighs> nothing's bugging me i'm good I mentally, 150%, like at the end of the day, my eyes feel crazy. I go home, you know, and hurt myself, stay up till two in the morning drawing. So, luckily, I, I, I've i been okay. I've been, I've been okay. It's more mental stuff, you know, physical stuff, I've been okay. Hmm.
0: Do you feel like it's an ebb and flow as far as um, like eagerness? And, you know, because I think we all get into modes where we're like tattooing all day and then like painting every night and then it stops for a while or like pursuing other art stuff like do you feel that up and down i think
1: tattoo well i know i know guys don't like this but i i don't consider myself an artist i'm a tattooer um i start i have never done anything else i never got into art like i started so young getting into drawing tattoos at 14 15 16 years old so that was my art um i i've painted i've done flash i've done all that stuff but it feels like white noise now when i do it i feel like I'm, i'm faking it you know so it's like I wanna paint but not that stuff. I'd rather do outside the tattoo realm. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love what I do so much. I, I can't see me not doing it. And I, I don't have any other skills unless someone's gonna hire me to play like video games or something like that, or maybe test weed or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> other you know, than that, I don't know what else I would do. Yeah, you're not gonna
0: hit up plumbing school or anything <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Julie? A long, illustrious career, and you're still doing it.
2: In January, it'll be 45 years. I think I'm going to have a party. We'll be there. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot more fatiguing, but I, I have a, de- a whole devotional practice that I work with, and I set my intention to be excited every day. Or whatever is going to be, that I'm I'm here to do the best I can with my own being. You know, what can I do? Can I be happy? Can I be cheerful? Can I do um, uplifting things for the people around me? And that which I do in that regard is also what uplifts me, because it's a return gift. You set your energy. Within your own being and you and push that energy out. So what are you pushing out from yourself? Are you gonna be hateful? Are you gonna be irritated? Are you gonna be negative about everything? Or are you going to be the best you that you possibly can be? And that takes a great deal of strength. Strength of intending to be peaceful and calm, even in the face of turmoil. Eek, and we all know that tattoo studios can render a lot of turmoil, even in drama-free zones.
0: Mm -hmm. But that's the truest test.
2: But um, I have found in all of my career that whenever I was dealing with troubled times, and there have been plenty, that tattooing was the best damn escape I could find. It forced me to focus on what is at hand. What am I doing right now? How am I interacting with this client? And I have been able to get through some truly horrible times with the blessing of tattooing.
1: I couldn't agree more. I, I, I tell people I joke all the time, but it's true that tattooing is my downtime. When I get to sit with a client and that's all I'm doing, I don't, that's got to wait and this has got to wait and I can't answer that email. It's, hundred fifty percent of my downtime. Yeah. Because everything else around it feels like work. That does not feel like work to me. Yeah. Which is great. Love it. Yep. It's a
0: perfect excuse. Yep. Do you feel like you are always able to be so deliberate with your approach or has that morphed and, and come to be what it is now over time?
2: I think it has been um an evolutionary process. I don't think tattoos come out quite as well when you're not focused on them. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It takes that extreme concentration and that that deliberate act of putting pigment into someone's skin and then checking in with the rest of the body to see what that person is doing. You know, how are you feeling? Are you doing okay? Is your hip bothering you? You do, Do you need to change that arm angle and of course, the old timers used to say, oh, if you ain't in an uncomfortable position, it ain't a real tattoo.
1: Yeah. I feel like I still say
2: that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Jokingly, but yes. No, now I prop
2: everybody up with pillows <laughs> yes, and, and as do play we. the soothing yeah, music. Right. You have to. Yeah.
0: Will you hear that? You miserable bastards out there. <laughs> as you're, You've you half typed a negative comment under this video. Listen, just rewind that back the last five
2: minutes and you've learned something. <laughs> And also, there is the warm water rinse. I cannot stress this enough. How do you keep it warm? You go, how do you keep it warm? I use one of those candle burners, those electric candle burners. I set a ceramic cup on that, water in that, plastic baggie over top of that, and then set my disposable cup into the warm water. And that is so soothing and nurturing to irritated tattooed skin Mm -hmm. and people just relax into it i found and that i found that to be true just when i was being tattooed myself quite extensively that a cold spray or a cold wet rag was just really really distressing and irritating that would cause me to jump more than the, the tattoo machine action itself yeah So I've been doing that for maybe almost 30 years, and people are just, oh, oh, that feels so good. Oh, thank Thank you. you. Oh, I really needed that.
0: Pro tip. Yeah, that's a good tip because I can can think about every tattoo I've probably done ever where you hit him with that that cold towel.
2: Yeah, you jump. (laughs) It startles startles the whole body and makes you tense up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to... um, to think about the shift as far as considering our clients, which seems like a no-brainer now, and especially um, you know as we do larger work. I know Eric, you're doing big-ass tattoos every day. Um, you really have to consider that stuff, or else no one will ever finish their tattoos.
1: Absolutely, right? Yeah, yeah, have, yeah. Been lucky with that. I got a few out there that haven't gotten finished, but uh, well, that's yes. always <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Life happens. What do you? Yeah. Think?
0: But I think that's what's interesting uh, about tattooers with no tattoos or with not a lot of large tattoos. I feel like I've learned the most from experiencing that, like feeling the the cold rag or feeling whatever that's uncomfortable. And you you kind of pick up little tricks like that that aren't really necessarily the exact direct technique of the tattoo. But like that's the technique that I feel like goes such a far way for people.
2: Yeah, it's um, importantly peripheral.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, the tattoo industry today. How do we feel overall? Julie's very positive, so you'll probably say that
2: it feels pretty good. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yes and no. Yeah. Um certainly there was not that much competition back when I first started. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were hardly any tattooers out there at all. Yeah. And um and now the the proliferation of, of tattoo studios everywhere. It's like, wow, look, there's another one. When did that one get here? <laughs> Who are those people? Well, it's like McDonald's. And, um, But on the other hand, the bar has been raised so high, and I tell this to people all the time. It's like, it's mind-boggling what's out there, and that you can go on Pinterest, everybody's favorite flash source these days. Um. And just see this incredible work, not just from down the street from you, but in Russia, in China. I mean, it's, you see global mind boggling tattoo work. And you wonder how did they do that? <laughs> right.
0: Which kind of brings us full circle from the beginning of this conversation about our more formative years, having that experience, and now we're having it all over again. <laughs> there will never be a shortage of like special effects tattoos out there that we just can't wrap our heads around. But I don't know—is it just camera tricks? I don't know.
1: Are you talking about like I'm talking op- about like realistic stuff, or
0: just anything that looks so slick it's almost impossible seeming?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, so I don't even understand how some people do that stuff. I'm yeah. so minimalistic when it comes to tattooing. I use like four needles and eight inks and like, I just, yeah. So I, I don't get it. I can't wrap my head around it.
0: Yeah. So do we think that the best days of tattooing have passed
1: or is there always going to be a new oh, set God, of best no. days? No, 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 no.
2: I think the, it's the new paradigm. Yeah.
1: I think I, everybody, it's just in their experience, their time when they started, when they, they had their gold, I wouldn't even call it the golden age, but when they had their really early years, when they so obsessed with it, they're always going to go back to that and say those were the best years. But I think every every generation of tattooing is going to do that, you know, especially nowadays, because just like you had said, everybody's pushing the envelope farther and farther and farther and farther. That no, I meant that. I meant sure you can argue like the so called quote unquote magic. I don't even know if that's true. You know, I meant I miss working in those crazy street shop scenarios because things happened and it was a lot more energy and things were going on. And you kind of still get that in some shops, but uh, does that really affect tattooing in general? I don't know. Maybe it does for some. I don't think so.
0: I think everyone always likes listening to tattooing's first album, the best.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or those early Saturday night lives where everybody loved them, but now they're supposedly they suck. So
0: right. (laughs) And even longing for, or maybe not even longing, but just thinking back to those high energy late night kind of situations, would you really want to do that now regularly? Maybe.
1: Not me. <laughs> I don't know if I would. I don't know, man. I, 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 I love those high energy fun stuff. When you yeah, don't know what's going to come in. I miss in. it. I miss that stuff. I wish people would get stuff off the wall. Not that I don't love what I do, because I absolutely love what I do, but that, the quick kind of high energy stuff, I, I like it, so.
0: Because it's just pure tattooing. If people come in and they pick flash all day, you're not drawing, you're just tattooing all day. It's kind of fun.
1: Yeah, that, and I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it.
0: Yeah. I definitely feel like I get less crazy stories to share because, you know, our clients are always like, oh, what's the craziest thing? What's the craziest tattoo you do? And I feel like I used to have new ones like every other week, mm-hmm. and now I'm telling those same stories today. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any parting words anything you want to get out anything you think the world needs to hear these well, words will live forever okay no pressure well that sounds good yeah no, no pressure at all well
2: i think having a support system at home is extraordinarily helpful and my husband paul and i just have celebrated 19 years together congratulations
1: congrats yeah that's awesome
0: yeah it goes a long way absolutely Yeah, my my wife's here camera operating right now (laughs) what do you think how's life how's life for on your end yeah right she's lying because the cameras are on
1: (laughs) i'll ask her later and she'll say shut up (laughs) what do you think eric i i couldn't agree more um having someone at home my wife that deals with my hey good to see you here's 15 minutes of conversation i'm gonna go draw and her not even being phased by that is just she's amazing you know um not that i don't get to see her but she understands that i do this i do that and it doesn't even phase her so it's it's amazing it's awesome she's great couldn't agree more and she's the best when i get to go home And rant about something stupid that doesn't have to be ranted about and she's the one that's like what's wrong with you and then gives me a good explanation of why I shouldn't do that so
0: I think that's the best
1: yes absolutely
0: having someone to snap you out of it exactly (laughs) when you think there's a make or break moment occurring in your life then you can go home and they're like what are you talking about
1: yeah yeah. someone to put me in my place that's what yeah
0: yeah (laughs) when I get home Rachel says look I have a real
1: job I have real problems you got it good
0: and she's right (laughs) All right, well, thank you guys so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank Um, you, absolutely. And thank you uh, to this beautiful place, the Eustace Estate, Historic New England, um, this exhibit, Loud Naked and in Three Colors, uh, which will be open through October 30th. So I encourage any of you, um, if you live around the Boston area or if you're visiting, or just make a special trip for this. There's a lot of cool stuff to see, and there's a lot of cool stuff to do in Boston. You can go bother Eric at work. Please, come by. (laughs) Yeah. Tell him you heard him on the podcast and then you can ask him all the questions that I didn't ask. (laughs) And that's that. Thank you everybody for watching, for listening as always. Um, I'll be back next time in not such a visually beautiful space, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you.